The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. You've probably heard about this big new train line that's been decided from Auckland CBD out to the airport. The plan is to drill a tunnel all the way from the Wynyard Quarter to Mount Roskill and then come up out into the open and take a rail line through Mungaree to the airport. It would significantly reduce the time to get from the CBD to the airport. It would allow a whole bunch of new jobs and housing arrangements and shopping centres at the various stations all along the route. It would mean a whole bunch of people would get out of their cars and into trains, trains which of course would be powered by electricity, and we hope renewable electricity. So on the face of it, it seems like a sensible, obvious thing to do to reduce our climate emissions and to get Auckland set up for the next 40, 50 years of people trying to move around. So this week we spoke to Michael Wood, the Transport Minister, about this. But in doing so in this podcast, I wanted to challenge his assumptions and our assumptions about whether or not a big honking railway is actually the right thing to do for the climate. It seems obvious that it would be. But when you scrape the surface, it's not quite so simple. In fact, it depends on a whole bunch of assumptions, which, when you look at them, can be changed and in many ways could lead you to the conclusion that it isn't a good idea to build this railway from a purely carbon emissions point of view. Let me explain. You remember I talked about how building this railway will mean drilling a tunnel, a long one, from the Wynyard Quarter to Mount Roskill. Now that involves a whole bunch of drilling. It also involves a whole bunch of steel and concrete. And remember, you need to burn coal to make steel. And you need to burn something to make concrete. In fact, the cement that's in concrete actually emits 600 kilograms of carbon emissions for every tonne of cement that is produced. So you're actually increasing carbon emissions when you're in the process of building a railway. All of that concrete and steel and drilling, that is going to increase carbon emissions over the next 10 years or so as it's being built. Secondly, the weight between now and when the rail line is built is going to mean people who were going to get out of their cars and into their trains, they're going to still be belching carbon emissions for the next 10 years while they're in their cars. So relative to doing nothing, and this is the surprising thing, that rail line actually increases New Zealand's carbon emissions by 400,000 tonnes by 2031. And it's another two or three decades before it's up to speed and running properly. It will take until 2040 before this project is actually carbon negative, i.e. starting to reduce our carbon emissions. That is 
a good 20, 25 years away. And we know from the uh, COP conference in Glasgow that the key thing is for us to reduce emissions in the next 10 years. In fact, the Auckland Council has a target to halve its transport emissions in the next 10 years. If anything, this rail line will make it harder to do that. Now, it may still be a good idea, and we spoke to Michael Wood about the benefits of creating a sensible transport network that allows people to connect up with other forms of public transport to get around the city properly. That's why the government announced it was bringing forward a second harbour crossing, most likely a rail tunnel under the harbour from the CBD to Takapuna. That all makes sense, and Sir Dovemeyer Robinson back in the 70s would be turning in his grave if he knew it had taken us 50 years to get to this point, because his original plan for a Auckland-wide rail network was proposed in 1970. The irony, of course, is that it was a Labour government in 1974-75 that eventually decided not to go ahead with that. The point of this episode, when we speak to Michael Wood is to challenge those assumptions about climate change. And we speak also to Andrew Schultz, an economist from Sense Partners, about how it is we make these decisions. Maybe it actually makes sense to not do the project and simply shift our use from being in a car to being on a bike or walking, particularly for these big urban areas. Because not only are you not burning all that coal to make the steel and the concrete for the new thing, but you're very quickly moving these emissions out of cars and into electric bikes, walking and cycling. But that requires you to really understand your process for the business case. And we talked to Andrew about how much of that work is now being done across not just the public sector, but also companies. How how are they actually building the carbon budgets into their uh, decisions? What are the key assumptions? That's this week in When the Facts Change. How are we doing our carbon budgets? And should we really have a big honking rail line if we want to reduce emissions soon? Well, welcome to Michael Wood, the Transport Minister who's come into the spin-off studio here. Great to see you here on When the Facts Change. Oh, kia ora Bernard. Very happy to be here today. Yeah. Auckland. It's all happening in Auckland and the big plans for the entire city really depend on this Auckland CBD to the Mangari Airport rail decision. Why make the decision to dig a big tunnel rather than the original vision for the light rail, which was a tram-style thing that went along Dominion Road and stopped and rattled and things. Why decide on the big tunnel? Well, well, what we can do actually is take a a couple of steps back and go to what was the the real original vision, um, which was Mayor Robbie's vision back in uh, the early 1970s, which was for a linked-up rapid transit system across Auckland. It wasn't just a single line here or there. It was an interconnecting system that would enable people to make journeys around the city, would shape urban form, would give hundreds of thousands of people um, the realistic ability to travel by public transport rather than private automobile. And successive central and local government administrations have dropped the ball on that. And that's why Auckland has the urban form it does now. Sprawling, low density, uh, car dependent. And so that's really the vision that we are working to here. It's not just about the city centre to Mangere. 
uh, it's about developing a whole network. And that's why part of the announcement the other day was also about getting a public transport-centred connection to the North Shore, about making sure we have rapid transit going out to the rapidly developing northwest. And here's the critical bit that comes to your question, linking those bits together and finally having that linked-up system that really future-proofs Auckland. And if we go to the tunnel versus um, surface question, surface had many good things running for it. And um, we made this really clear when the light rail establishment unit released its report back in October. Every option was viable. Every option had pros and cons. And if you looked at surface level, I think in particular the accessibility, the ease of being able to hop on or off at street level was something that really appealed to people. And that's that's fair play. That's one of the benefits it has in its favour. What, what tunnel light rail has in its favour, and these are the things that um, tip the balance to us, and we did look at them carefully. We really wrestled with it. Uh, firstly, the capacity. If you're going to have that fully future-proofed linked-up system, you need to be able to cater for a lot of capacity, not just in the next 10 or 20 years, but for the next 50, 60 or 70 years. And the tunnelled option, because it's completely grade-separated, because you can run very high frequencies, gives you a lot more capacity and incidentally can support more urban intensification as a result. Tell us about that urban intensification because it's not just a tunnel that goes straight from Winnie Quarter to Mount Roskill. Um, there's a bunch of stations along the way drilling down and then of course you could do lots of apartments and medium density and all sorts of different things around those stations along the way. What are we talking about in terms of you know extra houses, extra jobs, that sort of thing? This is the huge part of the project and it's important not just to think about it as a transport project, it is, a, it is an integrated urban development project. And what the modelling that the establishment unit has done is said that along the city centre to Mangali route, over the next 50 years, we can cater for an additional 66,000 houses with this piece of infrastructure. That would be one quarter of the required urban growth that Auckland needs. So it enables a lot of housing that we won't be having to build and fund at the fringes of the city. So there's a net cost saving there. And it enables us to build them in the places where people have access to employment and education and other services. And that's the key thing about bringing the transport and the housing together as you get that broader urban outcome. And, and then you start to look at the abilities to, to create a linked up network to the North Shore, to the North West as well. And, you know, the community who spoke up most strongly for um, this project during the process were the people of Mangari who have been cut off from rapid transit for decades and decades, who suffer transport poverty, who suffer lack of access to employment and education, and they want this going through their community to create that renewal and those opportunities. In the network thing, the one thing that was slightly surprising about the announcement was the decision to bring forward a second harbour crossing. Is that going to be just for rail, or can I drive my big old SUV under the harbour and get to Devonport real fast? That this will be a public transport-centred crossing. I'm, I'm very clear about that. Uh, what we specifically announced this uh, last week now is that we're going to bring forward the planning on the crossing and we'll be consulting on the core options later this year with decisions made by Cabinet next year. So there are different ways and you can, that you can cut this. And what we will be doing is looking at the existing infrastructure, so the existing bridge, which as we know is currently all for private vehicles, and the new piece of infrastructure. Could be bridge, could be tunnel and working out how we cater for all modes. Road, public transport, and of course that issue of walking and cycling, which we've been working our way, our way through and has been difficult to land. But we want that to be part of uh, this solution in an enduring way. 
Now, how are we going to pay for this project, which the business case last year talked about $14.6 billion, uh, which was about $6 billion or so more than the um, above-ground option? So who's, who's going to pay for it and how? Sure. Look, these projects are expensive. We should have done it 50 years ago. There is no way of building rapid transit through existing large cities that will give you decent capability and capacity on the cheap. And, and anyone who says that you can doesn't know what they're talking about. Anyone who says that we shouldn't is lacking in vision and shouldn't be anywhere near government. We've got to get on with this stuff and bite the bullet. And remember that it's infrastructure that will last us for 50 to 100 years. How will we pay for it? Um, well, as the Minister of Finance said when we launched this, we know the Crown will need to uh, pay the lion's share of this sort of significant investment. Um, Grant Robertson you know, did announce at that, uh, um, uh, at that time that we're going to have to think about collectively, not just the government, but New Zealand, um, what debt is for in this country and have a bit of a look again at actually why it is that we have long-term debt to fund long-term infrastructure projects. So that clearly is going to be a part of the conversation. And what's the benefit in the Crown, as in all taxpayers in all New Zealand, paying for a project in Auckland? You can hear the howls from Gore that their tax money is going to people riding the train in Auckland that they'll never see, let alone use. Well, that's true a little bit. But of course, we live in a society. Um, We build assets and infrastructure all over the country that people pay for um, across the country. A lot of the big infrastructure that we build um, in uh, sparsely populated parts of the country, if you really wanted to drill down into it, is effectively subsidised by the heavily populated parts of the country like Auckland. But that's as it should be. We actually need to look at this infrastructure not through a narrow narrow parochial what's in it for me and my little local patch uh, point of view. We need to look at this through um, in terms of what's actually good for New Zealand over the long run. And New Zealand will do well when its big city, which is its big connection to the world, does well. This is where so many of our links to the world, our export markets connect with us. Um, It's where a lot of productivity is driven. It's where a disproportionate share of economic growth is driven from. When Auckland does well, New Zealand does well. But of course we make those investments in other parts of the country as well and we'll continue to do so. So just the other thing on the paying bit that we announced is the value capture piece. And that is important. There will be a lot of public investment that goes into here. Just to clarify on the costs, the $14 billion cost is, is a an inflated cost in 2021 dollars it's between 10 and 11 billion dollars still a lot of coin I grant you but that's what we're looking at in today's dollars the value capture piece is about if we're going to put a lot of public investment into this we will raise the value of land um, a topic you're familiar with and interested in Bernard and we think it's fair and reasonable and equitable that through some means um, that the people who benefit from that contribute back to the public asset is and that, so we're exploring the best way of doing that. Is that the government that does that or the Auckland Council? It could be either. And we'll do work at the next stage on exactly what the best model is. Lots of international examples. It can be something like a, um, a targeted rate, which is a little more on the local government side. It could be about the Crown and its land holdings and how we get value out of those to, to put back into the project. It can be value that's captured on realisation. There are a range of different ways. So it needs to be equitable to the, the public and the taxpayer. And it needs to be fair and equitable for the people who are paying. So we're just going to take a little bit of time over the next year to, to land that right. I'm a bit of a fiscal accounting uh, geek. Love a good uh, spreadsheet, uh, treasury analysis, benefit to cost ratios and all of that. And I'm curious about... How important in this decision the climate change accounting parts of it are? 
since this project's been considered, which has been a long time, uh, there's been a lot more talk about the potential liability New Zealand faces in 10, 20 years' time when on current uh, emissions rates we face some big bills. And the business cases, particularly for the tunnelled option, were that it would actually generate an extra 400,000 tonnes of carbon in the first 10 years. So by the time you start, 2023 or so, till 2033 or so, that 10 years is the crucial 10 years for the planet. That's when we're uh, supposed to reduce our emissions and Auckland has a target of halving its transport emissions by 2030. I'm curious about, you know, how important that climate change emissions timing was in the thinking and whether, you know, if you were being radical about it, you'd say, well, it's actually, um, we're not actually achieving what we want in the next 10 years by doing this. Why don't we just uh, stop everything, get the cars off the road, just turn those roads into footpaths and cycleways and you'd get your halving much faster and cheaper. Mm. I think the first thing to say is that the, the, the carbon accounting is very important to what we do. Cabinet's bound itself now. Whenever we make a decision about a project like this, we have to have a formal assessment that's part of our considerations. And people can and have tried to sue us if we don't if we don't take adequate account of that. So we're building those sort of institutional mechanisms in, which mean that the carbon accounting is, um, is there when we make decisions. Um, obviously, the big play here is the emissions reduction plan now. That's come out of the uh, advice from the Independent Climate Commission. It, it sets us on a path to net zero by 2050. It tells us in transport we need to reduce by about 41% by 2035. And we're now getting the plans in place that certainly for the first couple of five-year budget periods have us on track to achieving that. And that's by reducing emissions across our car fleet. It's by mode shift out of cars into public transport, walking and cycling. And it's about those urban form questions so that people can live their lives without having to take car journeys everywhere. So what you're saying is this project is not necessarily the only way you achieve that Correct. halving of transport emissions over the next Th That's years. exactly the point. It has to be a whole of systems approach. And where I locate the mass rapid transit system that we're building within this is it's kind of like the backbone of the system. And if you look to you know, the, the great walking and cycling cities of the world, the one that many of us cast our eyes to at the moment is Paris, who have, under the socialist mayor Anne Hidalgo has led a, a really revolutionary programme of providing safe walking and cycling um, infrastructure for the people of that city. It's built around Europe's second heaviest patronised rapid transit network, the Paris Underground, second heaviest after the, the Moscow system, which is amazing if you, if you ever want to go there. And Not it's right now. <laughs> no, no, fair <laughs> point. Um, it's how these modes work together. It's actually about how you give people the ability to make journeys around their city in a way that doesn't rely on the private uh, automobile. And so, yes, we want to get more people who can make more of their journeys by walking or, or cycling uh, safely. If you're someone who's living in Mangere and working in a call centre in town, that is actually going to be a tough call on many occasions at the moment to expect you to walk or cycle for that journey, no matter how much road space we reallocated. But what if suddenly you've got the opportunity to take a quick, efficient, clean, every five-minute rapid transit service into work, and maybe for the five- or ten-minute journey between the station and your house, you've got access to an e-bike? 
that's the kind of integration that we need to help people actually make the transition. It can't just be one motor. It's a part of the system, but it's a key part of the system. I'll make this point, and it goes to the general logic behind this decision and the choice of tunnel over surface light rail. This gives us massive patronage and massive mode shift. Um, by 2050, it'll take, under the modelling, about 30 million passenger trips per year. The entire heavy rail network in Auckland pre-COVID took 20 million. And all the international experts tell us the modelling's probably too low. But if that's 2030 to 2050, the next 10 years is when we really need the reduction, right? Um, that is enormously important, and we're getting on with that work through a range of other things. And as I said, in the next 10 years in transport, we're on target to achieve the reductions that we need to achieve. But I, I just... Well, I think I disagree with the line of questioning is, yes, that's important. We have to work towards our targets across the system. But that can't mean, in my view, that we don't invest in infrastructure that takes us beyond the next 10 or 20 years. We actually have to set up the city for the future, for the growth that we're going to experience and to give people the transport choices that they currently lack. That has been the failing of Auckland consistently for 50 years as we haven't looked beyond the next 10 years. And fundamentally, that's what this decision does. So we'll look out for that emissions reduction plan in a few months to fill in some of those gaps. Politics is something we haven't really talked about yet. We've talked about um, engineering and accounting. <laughs> That's been good. Yeah. But uh, politics matters. Firstly, the local politics. There was a trial of a an attempt to, you know, reconfigure a road into walking and cycling in Onahunga last year, which caused all sorts of um, ructions online and offline that eventually had to be wound back early. You know, how ready is Auckland for uh, some of this mode shift stuff, which is a, a, an easy phrase to say, mode shift, but, you know, try talking to someone who's, um, you know, racing to get the kids to school and throwing all their tools in the back of the ute. You know, how... How do, you, how do you talk about mode shift? How easy is the politics going to be on the, in the next 10 years or so on this? Tough, Bernard. The nature of transport as compared to most of the other areas where we really need to shift down our emissions makes it harder. So if you look at agriculture, enormously important, biggest emitter. Um, it's a relatively small sector of the population who are involved in that part of economic production and we need to make changes there. The thing about transport is every time that a person sets foot outside their house, they interact with the transport system in some way. So every person, every day, virtually interacts with the transport system and we've provided infrastructure that they've adapted their lives around. And to some degree, in some cases quite a lot, we're going to have to change that uh, between now and 2050 if we want to reach net zero. So that does make it tough. <laughs> My approach around this is that if we get it right, we actually fix a lot of the other things that people don't like. If we get this right, we reduce congestion, we make the air cleaner, we make it safer for your kids to, to safely walk or cycle to school like most of us did when we were kids. Um, we'll have livelier town centres, um, we'll kill and maim less people on our roads. So I think it's actually painting the whole picture about how this can be better as we work through this transition. But one of the issues here is that... Um you're a politician, the minister at the moment, uh, and you've you've been in for four years. Probably unlikely you're going to be there in 14 years' time, and there's probably going to be a change of government sometime in the next decade, well before this thing is finished. And the opposition have said, no, nope, if we get in in time, we'll kill this. And there doesn't seem to be that sort of... Um, middle of the political spectrum consensus about, you know, making these big changes. If I'm thinking ahead, where do I buy a piece of 
buy a house or, you know, how, how am I going to get my kids around in the next decade or two? How do I get certainty that, you know, there's not going to be yet another change of government and a freeze on investment, let alone if I'm, you know, in business or infrastructure trying to plan for the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, well, of course, to all listeners, there's a simple fix to that uh, in about <laughs> October of next year. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, we will be pushing forward and creating momentum within this project with early works beginning uh, next year. And what I would say is, yeah, this project was foundering um, as of the end of 2020. It had been through that twin track process. There wasn't an agreed approach between local government and central uh, government. And actually over the last year, the work of the establishment unit, I think, has put us in a much stronger place. There's now consensus between local government and central government. Within local government in Auckland, pretty much consensus across political lines, national and Labour-aligned councillors strongly in behind this project. Um, we have the sector itself uh, in behind it, Infrastructure New Zealand strongly in favour. Uh, the, the, the overwhelming feedback from communities when we consulted on this was just get on with it. Want us to stop talking about it, stop debating it. So I think the mood in Auckland and more generally has shifted significantly. They want to see progress. I've opened up the door to dialogue with uh, opposition parties on this. They've got some public positions at the moment. That's a little bit how politics goes. But I am just ruthlessly determined that we are going to land this and get it done for the people of Auckland. And I think we will. That was Michael Wood, the Transport Minister. After the break, we'll be speaking to Andrew Schultz, an economist from Sense Partners. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They, they've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. New Zealand's number one business school wants to help you unlock your potential. At the University of Auckland Business School, learn to innovate, research and collaborate with business leaders to drive real change. Join the business school that's doing things differently and find your passion at the University of Auckland. Check out auckland.ac.nz forward slash business to find the study option for you. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. 
Well, hello to Andrew Schultz, who's an economist at Sense Partners, who's come into our studios face-to-face here at When the Facts Change. Andrew, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me. Fantastic. Now, we pulled you out of your um, daily job doing interesting analysis and business cases and all of that sort of thing to ask about how a lot of people in government and companies are now having to think about their carbon budgets and their emissions credits and what the cost might be in 10, 20 years' time. That includes the cost of carbon. Tell us about how much of that has seeped into the spreadsheets and the modelling of all of these people around government and big business, small business, about you know how to plan for the future and do the numbers on these projects. It's definitely making its way into the spreadsheets. Um, I think it's probably got a little way to go yet, uh, particularly with sort of transport projects. Um, don't want to go too much into the detail, but it's it can be a pretty simple accounting exercise. You sort of count how many vehicle kilometres you think there'll be, multiply that by an emissions factor, and then you multiply that by your price, and there you go. Uh, so that's fairly straightforward, and it can ca- capture the direct emissions of a transport project. Um, but particularly what we're seeing over the last five years is this recognition that capturing um, what is variously called the traditional or direct benefits of a transport system. So travel time, vehicle operating costs, that kind of thing. It just does not get uh, the full picture. So to give us an idea, we've had this big decision made in the last uh, few weeks by the government about what to do about a, a rail line of some sorts between the CBD and the airport. There were three options in front of the government. One was a light metro system. So Rails down streets, grass everywhere, people jumping on and off trams. Uh, In theory, a lot lighter touch, so hardly any tunnels, not so much concrete and steel, and therefore it was a bit cheaper and a bit faster to produce. One thing that struck me in looking at the business cases for that was that the heavier rail option involved a lot more concrete and steel and time and money. The cumulative extra carbon emissions over the first 10 years of the project was actually 400,000 extra tonnes of carbon emissions. So how would someone do the numbers on that? What are the things that matter to make sure that the total cost-benefit number is something accurate? It wouldn't be easy. It would be quite an analytical exercise. So... Basically, there are two main factors you want to look at when you're considering emissions from transports. Uh, The first one is mode shift, uh, but particularly how does mode shift impact vehicle kilometre travelled? So there's this interesting dynamic with cars and and that kind of thing where the more cars you have on the road, uh, travel time increases. It's called congestion. Uh, but the reverse of that is true. So the fewer cars you have on the road, the, car, uh, the road actually improves, travel time improves. So if you build a fancy new railway and a lot of people move from their cars onto the railway, what you've also done is you've made uh, the road a more attractive option as well. Oh, no. So there could be more cars on the road thinking, oh, now I can drive faster because all those losers who can't afford a car like me are on the train and I can get to work faster. Therefore, 
<laughs> more more emissions from cars and on it's, the trains. Yes, so that's true. And it's also it's not that the total number of trips is fixed. So, you know, probably the simple way to look at it, which is also misleading, is to say, well, this train can fit 5,000 people, let's say uh, 80%, it's at 80% capacity. So that's, you know, 80% of 5,000 fewer cars on the road. It's like, well, actually, uh, it's quite possible that as you make driving a lot more attractive, people who otherwise wouldn't have driven at all decide to drive. could also be that off the 80% of uh, of that 5,000 people using the train, some of those are people who uh, who never would have driven. Uh, so there's this induced demand effect. Yelza, so, complex systems, yeah. ouch. Yeah, so it's called the Modigliani conjecture and it's this idea that travel times via car in the city will be sort of benchmarked by your public transport network. So if you improve your public transport, people will shift towards that public transport, but only until the travel times between cars and public transport kind of equilibrate between each other. Uh, Beyond that, there's no real incentive to shift from cars. So the implication is that on the one hand, it's really important how high quality your public transport system is, but it also really matters how good your road system is. Uh, And if you are simultaneously making improvements to the road, then that can completely negate the benefit of public transport. Uh, but it also means that if the existing road system can carry more cars than is consistent with net zero, unless you physically reduce the capacity of that road network, uh, you're not going to achieve your net zero targets because it's incredibly difficult for a public transport system to compete with a car when it's at free flow conditions on the road. So what we actually need is a whole bunch of speed bumps on the motorway to slow all the cars down. Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting, and this is where you get into some of the, the differences between the options, because one of the options is surface light rail. And based on some of the concept sketches that have been released, that would involve physically removing things like car parks, things like turning bays on Dominion Road in favour of light rail, which would achieve that. However, if you tunnelled under Dominion Road or tunnels wherever, If you don't make those changes to the roads, then not only are you adding a lot of carbon from tunnels, but you aren't able to reduce carbon uh, as much because you've still got excess capacity on the road, which a train really can't compete with in free flow conditions. So what looked like a very carbon-friendly decision to build a uh, light rail system from Auckland to to Mangere actually may mean there's a lot more cars driving up and down Dominion Road because there's no tram on it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And ultimately it depends on whether, you know, if they do build the tunnels and they decide to also restrict road capacity, then it's quite possible that, you know, there, there will be a substantial reduction. And the business case, the numbers of the business case seem to reflect either that uh, because the emissions reductions from light rail is a lot lower than light metro or light tunnel. So either they haven't taken into account the fact that, you know, there's a reduction in the road network or one of the things they've cited in the business case and one of the other major determinants of emissions is outweighing it, and that is the urban form. Ah, so this is the business of, you know, how close you live to work, what sort of 
medium density or otherwise a house you live in. So it's a fairly complex system. One of the things that I'm curious about is uh, how important the uh, carbon price is in the calculations that you make. And our old friend, the discount rate, for those who are regular listeners to When the Facts Change, you will have remembered the extremely exciting and uh, impactful discount rate episode. Um, in my view, discount rates are effectively a one generation's decision to impoverish the next, <laughs> depending on what the discount rate is. Uh, so how important is discount rate and carbon price in, in the decisions? Oh, it's critical. It will be a determining factor. Uh, because if you have a really high discount rate, then it doesn't matter how much you emit in the future. You know, it's 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 not going to be worthwhile doing anything about it today, uh, which is obviously a very sh- short-term, you know, viewpoint. Uh, likewise, if you have a lower discount rate, you're willing to take those things into account. Um, you know, if you if you have a non-zero discount rate, and if there were something that would catastrophically end life on Earth far enough in the future, you wouldn't lift a finger to do it today. If, so, it, if it required lifting a finger to do it today, if it were far enough in the future and you had a low enough discount rate, or you, even if you just had a non-zero discount rate, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do a thing about it. So uh, in theory, with a catastrophic disaster and extremely high costs, you know, 30, 40, 50 years out into the future, which, you know, some climate scientists are saying we have a few unlucky tipping points and a few lazy glaciers slipping into the sea, we could get there. So um, in some cases, you could go for a zero discount rate, or even uh, I've, I've seen some um, suggestions of a negative discount rate in the same way that we've had negative interest rates recently. Uh, it, but also this issue of the carbon price. Now, at the moment, we've certainly seen the traded markets in Europe increase their carbon prices quite dramatically in the last six to 12 months. And even our own puny little emissions trading scheme has seen a significant increase in the price and seems to be close to hitting its caps and uh, and we'll see what happens when it does. But um, how should uh, you know, Treasury and anyone doing long-term investment think about those, uh, those carbon prices in future when they plug them into their spreadsheets? Because again, they make a huge difference. Is there a juicy little carbon futures price curve I can use? Yeah, yeah, the Treasury has its own projections of carbon prices rising up to almost $1,000 a tonne by 2050. Um, so even with a standard 6% discount rate, that's, that's worth something today. Uh, you could argue about whether it's enough or, or something like that, but um, yeah. No. And, and could you make a case that um, the amount of time it takes for these light rail projects to get up and running. Uh, it's not going to be finished really until 2040, 2050 and not at full capacity until 2070. And in those first 10 years, you're generating extra carbon to produce it. That if you had the, the high enough shadow carbon price and a low enough discount rate, it may actually not make obvious financial sense right now to actually do a light rail. You might be better off just simply reconfiguring your roads right now to reduce your emissions right now and avoid this problem of 
uh, everyone driving down Dominion Road even faster. Yeah, yeah. So it depends on the relative price between now and the future. If you have a nice low price now and you have a really nice high price in the future, it's going to reward any project that essentially front loads emissions and back loads any emission savings. And what that means is that potentially a lot of transport projects which have a much lower cost of abating carbon, things like cycleways, uh, which we see around the world have pretty good uptake when you build them well and when you have a comprehensive network, uh, those things might get neglected in favour of a much larger transport project. So that's interesting. So in effect, some of these um, politically difficult but cheap decisions might be the ones that financially and in carbon terms are the better decisions, but for political reasons and also because maybe the assumptions being used in our current business cases, we're choosing the big expensive <laughs> option, which effectively backloads carbon emissions reductions and has quite high carbon increases right now because we have a, a shadow carbon price which might be too low and a discount rate that might be too high. Mm, correct, yeah. So the question we need to ask our politicians and our decision makers as voters or as journalists is not are you or aren't you going to build a light rail line, it's what's your shadow carbon price mm -hmm. and what is your discount rate? Correct, yeah. Fantastic. We're all better informed now as, as <laughs> voters and carbon budgeteers. Andrew Schultz from Sense Partners, thank you so much for coming in and increasing the excitement levels around cost-benefit analysis and discount rates. It's been wonderful to have you on. Thanks for having me, yeah. Nothing more sexy than the discount rate. <laughs> <laughs>